This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here with all of us again. Uh, I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Katie. And Richard Lawson. Hello. Um, It feels like a long time since we recorded, since we did an early episode after the Golden Globes last week. And as a heads up, next week we'll be doing an early episode as well because the Oscar nominations are coming out on Monday. It feels weirdly fast, even though this award season has gone on forever. I don't know if I'm the only one who got kind of taken by surprise that it was all of a sudden upon us. Yeah, I will confess to not have being as cognizant of the awards calendar as I should be considering we do this podcast. (laughs) Um, But it's just been so hard to get any sort of footing in like time in my personal life (laughs) trying to like figure out when things are happening professionally is hard but yeah I mean it does make sense because you know the the eligibility window closed a couple weeks ago and so why you know why not get the ball rolling and 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 I guess people will still be doing FYC campaigning events but like just on zoom oh yeah and they they certainly have been um and by the time this episode comes out the voting window will have closed so I guess our our opportunities to stump for whoever we wanted to stump for has passed um but we wanted to get into uh, in a whole whole slew of nominations and awards that have been handed out lately um some predictions of what's going to happen on Monday and then we had a question uh, via subtext um and we're going to talk about lots of those but someone asking us to talk about our personal favorites which I think we'll get into as well. But Joanna, actually, first of all, we had a subtext question about South by Southwest, which we're not really going to talk about in this episode, but it's coming up. And I think you had some answers for the uh, for the curious listeners who who asked us about it. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm a luxurious South by if I haven't bragged about that already. Uh, so I'm in, the, I'm in the midst of, of uh, reviewing all the, you know, narrative film eligible uh, movies. So I'm in uh, it's it's been a been a bit of a blast. We've talked before in this podcast, I think, about what to expect about of films uh, made during COVID. And I know that there were some that were at Sundance, but there are, there are quite a few in my little pack here. And it's been really interesting to see how people tackle that challenge. But anyway, the question um, actually comes from Will, and he was saying how much he loves he loved virtual Sundance. And we've talked about how virtual Sundance allowed for, you know, more people 
around the world to go to Sundance than ever before, right? Mm-hmm. Virtually. Um, and he was asking if South By, if you could buy individual tickets for South By or if you had to buy a pass. You have to buy a pass for South By. Um, that is, you know, the only system that they've been able to work out. Part of that, we'll have a piece that's going up on VF.com about some of the challenges and triumphs of South By Southwest uh, two years into uh, COVID restrictions. Um, but, you know, one of the restrictions that they face that not a lot of other film festivals face is that they also have the tech festival and the music festival are all sort of wrapped up together in the film festival. And so the only way they felt like they could navigate this was to do this pass system, right? So if you get a pass, though, you can go to anything. Um, They do still have capacity, but the capacity is pretty capacious. Um, And so, you know, you can get your pass. That means you can get into any film at South by Southwest Film Festival And you can either watch it when it goes on the platform or at any time on demand after that. But you have to reserve your ticket. So that's my understanding of the South by system uh, this year. But I think it's going to be worth it. There's a lot of really fun stuff. And um, and of course, if we can, uh, it's tough times for everyone, I understand. But if we can, it would be nice to support this festival that like is, you know, as, as we're looking to come out of this thing feels like fairly soon, it feels like South by is one of the only festivals that's going to get the, the double tap, you know what I mean? So, um, maybe that's premature. I don't know if we, we know what's happening with like the summer festivals. Well, I did uh, start pricing on Airbnbs in Toronto yesterday <gasps> as a real crazy person who's not even <laughs> vaccinated. But I was just like, well, they're cheap and like cancellation policies. So, uh, you can tell where my brain is. Oh, I love I'm, that I'm for you, Katie. I'm applying all right. Yeah. So, you know, so like, you know, pour one out for South by and, you know, support them. They're a great festival. Great people. Yeah, it's uh, it's exciting to see festivals continuing to power through. I think like between those and then, you know, the virtual Grammys are this weekend. We had the virtual Golden Globes like it does feel like we're at the end of this period of having to make do, hopefully. And so credit to everybody for getting themselves over the finish line. Um, OK, so. Maybe we'll start by talking about the Critics' Choice Awards and then lead into the BAFTA nominations, which were announced uh, this morning as we record this. And we should note that the Directors Guild nominations uh, will be announced after we record this, unfortunately, so we won't be able to talk about those. But um, I I think you can see a consensus emerging among a lot of these things, even though the BAFTA nominations were kind of thrillingly um, wild. Yeah, lots of movies I had like not never heard of, which is great. You know, it's supposed to be like about best British film, which is probably what Rocks is, whatever that is. Um, But for the Critics' Choice Awards. which Joanna, you and I voted for. You know, you got wins for Daniel Kaluuya and for Chadwick Boseman, um, which I think everyone pretty much expects, as well as Carrie Mulligan, who we've talked about having this strong momentum, even though she wasn't nominated at BAFTA. And then I think maybe the biggest takeaway for me from both sets of the, the Critics' Choice winners and the BAFTA nominations is that Nomadland is just kind of like standing astride everything in a way that I don't even think it was quite two weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I think that... Um... Here's the deal. Like we talk about the Golden Globes not being necessarily a solid predictor of Oscars. And of course, we had great conversations about how they certainly haven't earned that influencer status, given their, uh, you know, the makeup of their voting body and and, and various practices. Um, however, if like a glitz sort of glitz obsessed uh, ceremony body voting body like the HFPA is gonna you know shine its light on Nomadland <laughs> that can only mean good things for Nomadland which doesn't feel which feels like the opposite of glitzy to me do you know what yeah. I mean yeah um, and then yeah I like and Chloe Jaw coming kind of right alongside it like the two of them being considered a, a unit is 
also a little bit surprising to me for the way that we've kind of liked to divide up director and picture in recent years to be able to spread the wealth a little bit more. It really is they go hand in hand. Like she wins, it wins. Um, and I don't see why that wouldn't happen um, at the Oscars as well. Richard, did you have anything that stuck out from you from Critics' Choice? No, I mean, it was, you know, I think the the acting wins, supporting and lead and picture and director fell in line, I think, with what we have genuinely generally been predicting, you know, Kaluuya and Bozeman and Mulligan and uh, I guess Bakalova, you know, we'll see. I mean, she's been winning critics prizes, you know, for months now, it feels like. So, well, it doesn't it, it is it has been months. Um uh, so I don't know how that really translates into Oscar stuff. But, um, you know, if we wanted to kind of also touch uh, before going into BAFTA on the PGA nominations, mm-hmm. I, I think that Borat showing up there is a really good sign for that film's institutional support within the Academy. I, I would assume there is at least not insignificant overlap between the PGA and the and Academy voters. Um, it's usually a good bellwether for like what's what might be to come. So, yeah, I think that like in terms of the Critics' Choice Awards, a campaign like Bakalova's getting just another kind of speed boost, you know, that, that certainly does not hurt, uh, on her road to, I don't know, maybe winning. Oh, we, okay. <laughs> um, we have a question from Amy via subtext who has, I know the CCAs aren't really an indicator for the Oscars, but is it really the case that the next time Glenn Close loses an Oscar, it's to a Borat movie? <laughs> question mark from Amy. So is that, what, is that what we're headed towards? Do you guys think? Well, unless, um, yeah, I mean, she could lose this time, but maybe she plays Borat's mother in the <laughs> third one. <laughs> That'll finally do it. So I think our, our friend Joe Reed, I think, pointed out on Twitter that there's this amazing irony in Glenn Close being up against Olivia Coleman again, because Olivia Coleman famously uh, beat her uh, right. a couple years ago. And then you also start throwing Jodie Foster in there because the year that Jodie Foster went for The Accused, I believe, Glenn Close was nominated for Dangerous Liaisons, maybe. Um, and so then you start wondering, like, can they bring Cher back? Can they get Meryl Streep in there? Like, everyone who's ever beat Glenn Close for an Oscar is going to come back into the supporting actress category. Um but I have, I really, Sporting Actress is where I am the most puzzled, um, which is both kind of exciting and kind of frustrating because I feel like I should know more. And BAFTA, like talking about how they had some wild nominations, like and they nominated Maria Bakalova and Dominique Fishback for Judas and the Black Messiah. And then, oh, and Yu Jung Yun for Minari. Um, and then three actresses from movies I had never heard of, <laughs> which are British and may or may not even be out here, um, which is great, but really doesn't help me predict anything. So part of that, we should say, is this a good time to to revisit sort of the changing rules of how the BAFTA is is voting and nominating this year? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because, yeah, they they really changed things up this year. Yeah. So they, you know, they put out the statement at the end of September of last year about, you know, various awards bodies have talked over the years about commitments to diversification and, and ensuring representative voting. Right. And um, uh, the Academy's approach to that is let's just invite more people to the party. Right. And just mm-hmm. sort of like make sure more vo- voices uh, are heard. Uh, the BAFTA approach is way more intensive and structured and it has to do with like conscious bias training, all this sort of stuff. And then the introduction of uh, jury voting into various rounds. So it's, it's kind of complicated and category dependent, but in certain categories, specifically the acting categories uh, in this, you know, there's like the long list voting and then this, is the second round this is the nomination uh round round two and then round three will be the winners right and in round two there's a lot of jury voting and in all the acting categories 
it's by jury and jury, the jury, I'm looking at the BAFTA website and the jury is assigned, um, BAFTA juries are 10 to 12 industry experts put together by BAFTA comprising of a diverse range of backgrounds, experience and age. So, you know, there they, there you go. They like, they, they selected, a, a, a narrow diverse body of folks. Uh, the, these juries are secret, and what you get is a really interesting crop of nominees for the BAFTAs, mm-hmm. which is the, really the fun. The juries only have to be 50% BAFTA members. Um, which, which is really is fascinating. kind yeah. of a sticking point I've been seeing, like, that this feels more like a kind of outside body or part of an outside body swooping in and being like, you guys aren't doing this right. Mm, like, here's okay. how to do it. Sure. Um, and I can see that, but they weren't doing it right. <laughs> you know, right, if, right. if last year's was any indication. So, I, I, I you know, Guy Lodge, who um, is a South African journalist, but he lives in, in England and um, writes for Variety and other outlets. He was he was kind of covering the BAFTA nominations on Twitter this morning. And, and basically he was saying that, like, this is a temporary fix to kind of push the nominating ethos into a di- different, more holistic, more diverse direction. Um, and so if you need these kind of outs- some outside moderators, consultants, if you will, to come in and be like, here's like how it could be done in terms of thought process and making sure everyone watches every nominated, you know, every shortlisted film, every longlisted film, whatever the requirements were. I, I, that makes some sense to me, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the Oscars are never going to do that. They're not designed to do that. And I think that's fine. Like, the Oscars is supposed to be, like, a really broad sampling of a large group of, like, prestigious people in the industry. And BAFTAs are trying to do something different. And especially because they're so often, like, getting their lunch eaten by American films. And they're supposed to be celebrating British film. Like, if this is a way to really tighten up that focus, I think they really succeeded this year. I think the big takeaway narrative from this is is that these nominations are very clearly not like we're trying to be predictive of the oscars yeah. you know which is something the uh, criticism that's been lodged at the baftas by i think mostly british people for a while now that they're like hey can we stop trying to be the oscars eve or something like that can we actually do it you know their their most inter- interesting categories have always been like you know british film and they do like a rising star award. Those are always like the most interesting things to me out of the BAFTAs. Um, and so, and, and I, I don't know, like I hear you about, about the, they don't have to be BAFTA members. Like I think probably they should, they should make sure that there are enough interesting <laughs> BAFTA members from different backgrounds to be able to form these juries just from BAFTA members. But I do really see a virtue in this second round voting being juried because I think it's so much easier to ensure that 10 to 12 people have watched all of the eligible films than a vast body. And you've got these 10 or 12 being like, these are the things, you know, and, and presuming that it rotates, you know, these are the films that we think are interesting. And then that's going to force the, at least some of the wider voting body to be like, Oh, I haven't seen his house yet. I should check that out. Um, mm-hmm. et cetera. Do you know? Yeah, um, his house was one of the exciting ones. No, that, and, and, uh, you know, I reviewed that movie back in the, when it came out in the fall, I think, and it's a really interesting horror film with huge political, um, you know, themes that, you know, yes, normally that kind of smaller first time feature kind of movie would not be recognized so profoundly at a big award show like this. And that's on Netflix. Uh, Rocks, which you mentioned, Katie, the Sarah Gavron film, which I think tied for the most amount of nominations. Mm-hmm. That's also on Netflix. And another film that got, I think got four nominations, 
called Calm with Horses mm-hmm. is also on Netflix, but on Netflix and the American, it's called The Shadow of Violence. So just be aware. But like, so those are three big British films that got tons of nominations that are ready, readily available to watch. And yet I think still would not have broken through that sort of awards mind membrane had this intricate system of voting procedure not happened. They also did a thing this year. I mean, we've talked about how, you know, champagne problems, but how confusing it is to track the screeners this year, the way that they're coming in in America, and at least for our various critics groups in terms of some are online, some, you you know, it's just, it's a little haphazard, it feels like this year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the BAFTA put all of their eligible films on one website. Well, the Academy does that, too, to, to be yeah. fair. Like, they have yeah. a kind of a big unified screening platform, whereas we critics are trying to scramble all over this. <laughs> Figure it out. It's fine. It out. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, fine. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and for viewers, too, I think we've talked about how it's hard to just know what you can catch up with and when. Um, I have a I have a subject question on just that issue, if, if, I, yeah. if I may. Please. Um, our listener, Jesse, uh, writes in, is the father a real movie that exists? <laughs> <laughs> So what's your answer to that? (laughs) Yes, but I actually still don't know if you can see it outside of a movie theater. I think you can't, maybe, um, which is really frustrating. Um, I don't like Sony Pictures Classics has decided to do this with the father as well as Truffle Hunters, which is this very delightful documentary that I think is coming out even later. Um, But yeah, the father has been in theaters for a while. And I'm trying to look up. I had written down at one point when it's going to be on VOD. Um, So yeah, the answer is yes, sort of. It's a real movie. I mean, you know, it, it'll it'll come out eventually, but it does, you know, I was rewatching some uh, past Golden Globes opening monologues from Tina Fey and Amy Poehler uh, in the lead up to uh, last Sunday's show. And there was one joke where they were like, you know, here to celebrate the TV you've been watching all year and movies that have been in theaters for five minutes or something like two days, <laughs> or, you know. And, and, and I think that th- because of this weird, you know, altered timeline year, there actually has been a lot of stuff that's in the running that is readily available. But The Father, it almost kind of feels cozy in that, like, maintaining the tradition of this, like, little movie that people are like, I don't even, th- like, I know that that's been reviewed from a film festival a year ago, but yeah. does it exist? Yeah. But even, even like, Call Me By Your Name was out, well, out in theaters, I guess, at this point. Um, yeah, The Father's going to be, I think, March 26th is when March it's going to be March 26th, yeah. It's, it's going to be in more na- nationwide theaters this weekend. Um, it's doing a platform release, which, like, I don't know if anything, maybe Nomadland did for a minute. Um but yeah, they're they're going very very traditional with it. Um, so hopefully people try to bother to see it. But yeah, March March twenty sixth, um, on demand paid. Like you can buy it on demand or or rent it. So yeah, um, the father it exists. I still have a post it note on my computer that Richard is predicting Anthony Hopkins going to win. I think we know that that's not going to come true. But I will at least give you partial credit if he gets the nomination, Richard. Oh, he will. So, okay, yeah. he will. just. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Richard made that prediction before the pandemic had started. Know, like what we what we didn't know then could fill many buckets. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. 
and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Richard, you brought up the PGA nominees a little while ago, and I think Borat as the uh, as the best picture or best what do they call it outstanding producer of theatrical motion pictures nominee um, is certainly the big surprise in that. Um, I also wanted to point out the Sound of Metal showed up there. Um, Sound of Metal also got some number of BAFTA nominations. I'm trying to figure out the exact number as I look at the press release. Um, but Paul Racy was in there at the very least. So um, yeah, it's a, it's exciting to see it hanging in there as we keep talking about. I, I've been writing my Oscar nomination predictions, as I'm sure we all have, um, that are going to go up on VF.com in advance. So of the easy and simple to do this year, of course. We all know exactly what's going to happen. I got, I mean, my, I got, I got thrown a bone. My categories aren't too bad, but uh, I do have the supporting actor category. And there's that fifth slot that I'm just not sure. And I was seeing it as like a Jared Leto, Paul Racy toss up, which just, really irks me. I really need it to be Paul <laughs> Racy. And, and it is wild that Paul Racy went from like so far in front to now maybe vying for the fifth slot. Well, but, I think far in front with the critics, which I think we always knew was a little bit of a, a tougher sell for I, uh, I suppose, but I mean, you know, when when the critics often I find in the supporting category, when the critics rally around someone like a Patricia Arquette or something like that, that mm-hmm. can often just like push them all the way through, yep. you know. And so I was hoping that would happen for Paul Racy. Not the case. That's OK, because I'm a big fan of Daniel Kaluuya. And, and a lot of that happened before people had seen Jews and the Black Messiah, I think, or or at least the broader folks had seen it anyway. Um, but one of the questions that <laughs> we got we actually we got several questions about Alan Kim because I think he was his little uh, acceptance speech at the Critics' Choice um, Awards was one of the highlights of the whole affair. And so my question is, do you guys see a fifth place uh, spot for Alan Kim, who was BAFTA nominated this morning? Yeah, I think Minari has been gaining momentum overall. And it's mostly ov- obviously about like do Academy members have screeners of it? But the fact that it's now available to rent on demand, like, and more people are talking about it and able to see it, able to join in the Alan Kim fandom, you know, the nation fandom for him. And, and Yo Jung Yoon has gotten a lot of great press coverage, uh, in Vulture and other places. Um, you know, so I, I think that that was just kind of a slower burn. And I think it, Minari getting the PGA nomination, it bodes really well. I think Yo Jung Yoon is still the probably front runner for a nomination of any of th- of this wonderful cast but uh but yeah i could see it joanna i mean i i think that that as early you know awards indicators have shown us like there is not really much consensus on on performances this year other than what i would sort of deem as like front runner performances like daniel kaluuya and probably sasha baron cohen at this point for Chicago so, Seven, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't think I don't think he'll get a, a lead actor nomination for Borat. So I think, yeah, if he they put him, they give him something for Chicago Seven, that'll be kind of like. But you also had the other movie that we liked, you know. Yeah, I think that um, also in, in terms of campaigning, I know that Katie is very against 
child actors being put on red carpets and stuff like that. But, but he hasn't been. He hasn't been. He's been, been at home and <laughs> safe with his family. <laughs> he's been at home. But in terms of like any, I wouldn't even call it like a, a calculated campaign. He's just like kind of irresistible. That's, you know, there are narratives that co- have coalesced around Chadwick Boseman, which is a really strong narrative around Daniel Kalia. Um, in terms of like delightful just joy alan kim really seems to own uh at least the last few weeks of this of this uh season which might be enough for people to be like we want we want the cuteness at our awards ceremony do you know what yeah. i mean it, it doesn't have anything to do with alan kim but uh lee isaac chung's daughter hanging on his neck yes. while he's giving his golden yeah. gold yeah. he was so cute and like he you know he said something like she's the reason i made this movie and that that makes you want to vote for the kid in the movie Absolutely. And, you know, not not to compare the performances at all, but just that they were sort of award season darlings like voters could not vote for Ugly the Dog from the artist, you know, who was the cute sort of centerpiece <laughs> of that film and it was on the red carpet and everything. But Alan Kim gives a full bodied great performance in this movie yeah, and speaks really and does. is a human being. So like yeah. he can. And I, I feel like that, you know, that as much as a movie like Minari, which is so great kind of across the board in terms of its ensemble and its technicals and everything, as much as that movie needs a mascot, like here is one who is. Uh, charming and actually is kind of the center of the film. I'm a yeah. little salty about Steven Yeun not getting a BAFTA nomination this morning. But, I was going to um, say that. I think if I think Alan Kim getting nominated and Steven Yeun not, it, it's fine, obviously. But like Steven Yeun is so powerful in that movie and it would be a shame to see him left out. I have to think, okay, I, I like, I don't know if as three white people are really qualified to talk about this. But like, you know, we've talked before about Asian actors being ignored even when their films are praised and stuff like Mm -hmm. that and i was just thinking about what it is what is it about steven young's performance in this and and burning and other films that i think he deserves an oscar nomination for but hasn't gotten what what is it and i was just wondering if it's like if there's something about the fact that he is like a really restrained performer but but emotive at the same time versus like he's not screaming and he's not crying and he's not doing like big actorly things he's doing small actorly things and i think and and to me it's incredibly effective but i i don't know if there's some sort of unconscious bias uh, and an unconscious racial bias around that but i just i think he's so strong and and i'm i'm really salty about his treatment whenever he gets shunned so there you go well i think also Joanna, like you know like you kind of just kind of based on what you said like it's also just you know that the two actors getting nominated from minari are the sort of heart of the movie the kind of humor of the movie um you, you know, mean Alan Kim and Yu Zheng Yun? Yeah, you know, yeah. and 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 I think that they're just they're sort of sh- it's showier work, you know. Yeah, I do think that he's got to be brewing, if not for this one, so, like the next big, you know, artsy kind of well-regarded project. You know, like yeah. between that and Burning, and just like the general esteem for his career and his choices post Walking Dead. Like, I don't know, it feels like he is building a you know the the case for that he's due. I agree with you. I guess I just thought that like this was the year he was due after he was snubbed for for burning. Yeah. But like you know, but maybe, also like maybe. he could very much still get the nomination. Absolutely. Like I would say he's in the mix. And I hope he does. I hope. And he the, does. I mean, the scary tipping point is if we repeat what happened with Parasite, where Parasite gets all these nominations and none of the actors get nominated. If that happens for Minari, that's a pr- really big problem. And um, I don't think it will happen. But we have to all kind of root against it. I think. Speaking of snubs. Carrie Mulligan not getting a BAFTA nomination is like a really big, strange deal. Really I, strange. I think. And 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 uh, the fact, you know, it got nominated for Best Film, uh, Promising mm-hmm. a Woman Did. And so it's not that the group didn't like the movie. 
Um, it's nominated for Outstanding British Film as well and, and, and screenplay. So there's institutional support for that movie. But something about the long list to jury process, just Carrie Mulligan, a big probably one of the bigger British performances of the year, even though, yes, she's playing an American in an American film. Although, is it, I mean, it's directed by a British person too, so it's, it's nominated for British film. So I don't really know how those yeah, distinctions Yeah, that's funny because it's very, very distinctly set in America. That is weird. Yeah, but but like that to me, I don't, again, I don't know that that really indicates anything about Oscar. You know, she won the Critics' Choice Award. I still think she is toward the front of the pack, if not at the front of the pack. Um, but yeah, that, that was a, a strange omission and I don't think that anyone who got nominated instead of her didn't doesn't deserve to be there at all. But right. um, it's just an interesting kind of quirk of a of a already plenty quirky uh, list of nominees. Yeah, yeah. The Alfre Woodard presence in there is incredibly welcome. We talked about her performance a lot last year, but it's one of those things being like, wait, when is it? What what is time? Because uh, Clemency <laughs> was was last season for us. Um, but yeah, like Rada Blank for 40-Year-Old Version, like that's a movie that like keeps not popping quite above the surface when it comes to Oscars, but you love to see the um, the BAFTAs recognize it. Yeah, 40-Year-Old version, version is a movie that I wish I had sort of stumped for more, like on this podcast, in critics groups. I mean, I gave it a good review. Like, I really like that movie. Yeah. Um, and I guess I just, I mean, this is a bad thing to admit maybe, but I just didn't think it had much of a chance. And so I kind of didn't like you know, throw a vote for it out at like um, New York Film Critics Circle where it did win, you know, best first film. So she was represented there, which is great. But yeah, I'm really happy to see her kind of gaining these accolades. Um, I don't know that an Oscar nomination is to follow, but I don't know, maybe for screenplay or something like I I think there are possibilities. Well, we already talked about um, Glenn Close and Maria Bakalova, but we do have one question from a listener um, via our texting system. Uh, which Katie will let you know at the end of the show how you can yes. send us a text. Um, but Yanni wrote in and asked what happened with Amanda Seyfried, which, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about, but like it is one of those narratives this year that just I've, you know, if you asked me six weeks ago, maybe, or even two, mo- two months ago, I don't know, I would have felt so certain that that was all sewn up. And so w- what is your interpretation of what happened with that narrative? And I think not getting the SAG nomination is what kicked this all off, right? Yeah. I, I think that if you look at the BAFTA nominations, Mank got six nominations, right? And you're like, okay, so this is a well-loved film. But it's almost all like technical categories, which, you know, because it's such a wonderful technical feat, it looks amazing. It sounds great. You know, all that stuff. Um, but it didn't get anything. I mean, it got screenplay nomination, but like, but other than that, like Oldman's not in there, you know, um, so I just wonder if people are more appreciating it, as is often the case with a Fincher movie, as kind of a technical exercise and right. just not, it's not, you know, not like remembering or, or having those those performances kind of echo in their minds, you know, weeks after watching it when they go to vote. Well, if you want to compare it to black and white technical exercises from auteurs that debut on Netflix, uh, Roman then got those two actress nominations. So it's uh, you never know how the ball might bounce back. Um, I was going to pivot to talking about our personal favorites, and I was going to bring up Amanda Seyfried because I really have been rooting for her so hard through this whole season. I don't think it's over. Like, I'm still really counting on her to get an Oscar nomination. Uh, It's a bummer that she didn't show up at BAFTA. But I I think the supporting actress category is so much chaos that, like, I'm not counting anything out, honestly. Yeah, so this question comes from uh, Hilton Dresden, who texted in a a real real name, as far as we know. Great name. (laughs) Um asking about our personal favorites who we're personally rooting for. And he, he called out my love for Jews and the black Messiah and he called out Richard's um, Anthony Hopkins loves, but are there any sort of very personal uh, rocket man esque 
lot of things that we're, we're pulling for this year. Uh, Richard, do you have anything that you're thinking about? I mean, I, th- I think that the actress from Inari, I think I would, re- I really excited. I think Yeo Young in particular, like she's had a fascinating career in South Korea that I am just getting wind of. I was not familiar with her work previous to this movie, but like, because this movie has been getting so much attention stateside, like I've read profiles of her and, and, and her sort of pragmatic sort of, you know, kind of true to the character in the movie approach to her profession and, and, and her presence in America. You know, she lived in the States for a long time and, and then went to Korea to act because she couldn't get work here and now is back with this movie. And it's just, it's an interesting narrative. And I think she's so good in that movie. And what's so crucially good about that performance is that, you know, she's playing this quirky doddering grandma, but she doesn't over egg it with like cutesiness or, you know, and that's credit to Lee Isaac Chung's script and direction too, that there aren't these cutesy adages that she has to kind of, you know, toss out. Um, but it's a real performance because you watch her in interviews and she's, you know, very different and you know, and, and that's what any actor should be doing ideally. Um, but I think sometimes when it's someone who isn't, you know, a, a U.S. or a Western audience is not yeah. intimately familiar with, people can just kind of assume, oh, well, that's just like that. He just found this like old lady and that's right, not the case right. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really exciting to see uh, anyone who has a late career, you know, you know, in their older years, um, a kind of cherry on their, you know, the, the Sunday of their career. I think that's always exciting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if I have a if I have a two popes rocket man this year, it's uh, personal history, David Copperfield, which we've talked about plenty, um, uh, yes. which I'm not I'm not counting on anything huge for it. Like, I would be very happy to see it um, nominated in you know costume, production design, like all these screenplay, categories. Which very worthy. I think mark. screenplay could definitely be possible. Um, yeah. Rana Yanucci has been nominated there before for In the Loop, um, which I think was a kind of a different kind of sensation. So I, I feel a little uh, personally attached to to seeing that succeed in some way. And then the other one, I, I loved Boys State, the Apple documentary about the um, yeah. the, the young boys at summer camp. Um, I think the documentary category is competitive and that Time and Dick Johnson is dead are probably the smart money. Um, but I, I want to see it fight for it, too. Yeah, I, I was really on the Judas and Black Messiah beat. I was really excited to see Dominic uh, Fishback nominate the BAFTAs because mm-hmm. um, I really lo- I loved her performance actually in that film. And I think that, that like that the duo of Daniel Kaluuya and I don't know why I can normally smoothly <laughs> pronounce his name. I don't know what's wrong with me today uh, is, is really uh, a key part of that movie really working for me. I mean, I guess I just like wax poetic about Stephen Yeun for, oh yeah, Riz Ahmed. Riz Ahmed, I'm like, oh, I, yeah. I, I have been, I've been early and often talking about how much I love Riz Ahmed and Sound of Metal. Uh, and I'm really excited to see him, uh, you know, keep cleaning up. And, he, you know, his nomination seems like very certain at this point, you know, uh, in that category. I I wanted to read out to you guys, our pal um, Eric Anderson, um, who runs Awards Watch, has this tweet this morning about about looking at the BAFTAs and saying the only actors to hit the Golden Globes, SAG, BFCA, and BAFTA this season are Riz Ahmed, Chadwick Boseman, Anthony Hopkins, Vanessa Kirby, Francis McDormand, Daniel Kaluuya, Leslie Odom Jr., and Maria Bakalova. So that's hey. interesting. Little yeah. crop of constants. Um, how are we feeling about Vanessa Kirby? Like, I think she's in there probably. Nomination right? for sure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting that the world to come is out um, now ish. 
another movie that she's in and she her best actress prize at Venice was kind of shared by that in Pieces of a Woman. I think Pieces of a Woman as a movie kind of has ceased to exist a little bit, but I don't see why uh, she wouldn't make it into the actress cut. I don't know that she's in the competition for the win, though. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right, Katie, that the the, the movie as a whole, you know, Ellen Burstyn kind of had a, a campaign push behind her that seems to have kind of faded. I just reviewed The World to Come last week because it's now on demand for rental. And Kirby is kind of the supporting of the two lead women. Catherine Waterston's more of the lead. But she's and she kind of plays this character who disrupts this very kind of bleak existence for Catherine Waterston's character. So she's sort of supposed to be this captivating, you know, red haired sort of entity that enters this drab life from her own drab life. But um, and, and she's so good in it and just pops so like vibrantly that like I don't know that a ton of people are going to see that before the voting closes or, you know, or got to see it before the voting closed. But her being in a second lauded movie during this season, I think that if, 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 if it was needed, gives her the extra little boost into definitely getting an Oscar nomination for Pieces of a Woman. Yeah, I would agree. Um, it's interesting. Like, when you're talking about Riz and um, and Steven Young, the best actor race is kind of a, uh, it's like almost the nomination is going to be the end of it. Like everyone thinks and rightly that Chadwick Boseman is going to win. So if we can just get Riz and uh, Steven Young in there, like just like, okay, we're done. Like our, our work here, we we got the like the champions who we've been trying to push for this whole time. And uh, now Chadwick Boseman can very rightfully walk away with it. Right. And thinking about how interesting that lineup is so much more interesting than best actor category has been in a while. I don't know. Yes. I'm just, I'm excited. I'm excited for Rizal Men and Steven Yeun to go to the Oscars. They deserve it. Let's make to it happen. go, quote unquote, to yeah. quote unquote, the Oscars. Go to their Zoom screens in a tuxedo or a tie-dye hoodie, whatever they decide they need to do. I think we have reason to believe that maybe um, the Oscars will figure out a way around the whole Zoom thing better than the Golden Globes did. Um, I don't know that anything has been announced yet, but I'm I'm I've got my fingers crossed that it, it hopefully the last Zoom awards show and maybe the best. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. The other, um, can I zoom back to the Baptist? I know we've been like yeah, a little bit all over the map, but That's fine. the other category that I think a lot of people are really sitting up and paying attention to this morning is, is the director category. Um, because that was another one that was selected by jury. Right. And a bunch of women were nominated, but maybe not the women that we expected. Right. So we've got Shannon Murphy for baby teeth, Chloe Zhao for no man land, uh, Jasmine Zbonik for Quo Vadis Ida. Great, a film I've never heard of. Sarah Gavron for Rocks, which uh, Richard already talked about. And then Thomas Vinterberg is in there for another round and Lee Isaac Chung for Minari. But like, you know. <laughs> that is a fantastic list. Yeah. <laughs> Sorkin Adventure, nowhere to be found. Um, and uh, and also another round in general did really well at the BAFTAs. And that's just like, I think it's just, there's too much of a European sensibility for another round to break out of international feature film um yeah but anyway sorry back to the director an interesting thing about the the director category is that like so the chapters of the british academy decided the long list right and then the juries winnowed that down to nominations right so 
a lot of the films nominated in director, Baby Teeth, Quo Vadis, um, or to maybe not, maybe just a couple, didn't make the long list for best film. So it's weird to see this kind of like lopsided estimation. I mean, it, 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 it's, you know, how that works in the uh, American Academy as well, where like the branches vote on the, nom- you know, nominations. And um, so, I don't know, it's just kind of funny that like, how differing the, the the temperament of these internal bodies can be within you know within the within this larger organization, but yeah, I mean that's I, when I saw the the Baby Teeth nomination, I was like, whoa, that's like a a very small movie from like a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know? For the directing, just to sort of clarify, it's the first round, the directing chapter votes up to the top twenty ranked. Top eight. Oh, this is so interesting. Top eight female and top eight male directors are long listed. So they make sure that it's an equal split between men and women. You know, long listing jury selects the final two female, final two male directors based on the next place, 10 films by each. And then in the second round, you've got the jury, uh, as we talked about in the acting category. But that's so interesting because they're like really trying to ensure better gender parity. Uh, in that category. Yeah. And there's no requirement that the jury, there's no quota for that, for their final selection. So it still could be five men. The idea is that you're elevating movies that, you know, BAFTA or our Academy, whatever would overlook normally because they're directed by women or they're brought, you know, by people of color or whatever. And being like, no, you have to consider these as peers among these other more high profile or otherwise more, you know, ex quote unquote accessible movies. And, yeah. you know, I think that's a really interesting way to, and, and, and all the requirements that people had to, the people doing the lists had to watch everything, you know, yep. um, which is something the Tonys has always done. If you want to vote for the Tonys, you have to have seen everything and prove it. Um, and I think we, there could be more of that sort of effort put into things uh, here in the U S yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really impressed with what the Baptists have done here. So. It'd be interesting to see, like, like I was saying, I don't think the Oscars are ever going to go kind of diverge from their, like, Big Ten strategy, but, like, the Indie Spirits could certainly do this. I mean, the Gotham Awards already have, like, a lot of rules around their juried selection, so it'll be interesting to see if other people follow their lead. Um, well, do you guys want to make any final put-your-foot-down predictions for the Oscar nominations? We'll be back to talk about what we got <laughs> wrong. I mean, we're, we'll have, as Joanna mentioned, we're all kind of writing down our predictions that will be on VF.com, possibly by the time you hear this. I don't know. I feel so overwhelmed by the prospect of uh, trying yeah. to narrow all this down. <laughs> I did something I never thought I would do, uh, is I was assigned, so I was assigned, not that you guys care, but I was assigned supporting actor animation. And I know why I was assigned both of those. Um, <laughs> and then, um, and then I was assigned editing and I was like, and that's fine. Cause we're all like, most of us get like a technical category and then you got to do your research and like figure it out and stuff like that. Um, but I, I messaged, um, our editor and I was like, Hey, can I swap you? Cause she offered, you know, if you want to swap and I was like, can I swap you for sound? And she's like, yeah. So I, I got to write up the sound nominations, which I was really excited by because this is the year that the category, the two sound categories have been collapsed, which is on the one hand, um, part of the Academy's ongoing effort to make its show more exciting, collapsing craft awards or, or, you know, there was that scandal where they tried to shunt them off to the commercial break and stuff like that. So there's, there's a negative uh, cast to that, but also there's been a lot of, uh, you know, good journalism around the fact that 
many years, the same film wins the two sound categories because people don't know how to distinguish anymore, especially in this digital age yeah. um, between those two categories. So I'm not I'm not as salty about the collapsing of that cat of those two categories into one. And a lot of people from within the category really lobbied for it. Um, like yeah. I, I did a story. Oh, God, I wish I could remember who it was. I was writing about sound design last year around the time they were talking about it. And the person I interviewed had been in the Academy for a long time. It was like, yes, the w- digital technology makes it so the editing and mixing really over overlap yeah. a lot more yeah. than they used to and so it made sense to, to merge them so i'm wondering like i feel like every year whenever we talk about sound we get bogged down to trying to explain the differences between and it makes it one of the technical awards that feels like the most technical because we have to get really technical mm-hmm. about what the distinctions are and this year because uh it's just sound i feel like it can land in a space that feels it's still technical, but as it's always been, but just maybe more so in the public eye that it's artistic mm-hmm. and art. And, you know, and for that reason, I was excited to write about it a little bit. I mean, very little bit. These are little blurbs for writing, but like to write about it a little bit and to champion, you know, my beloved Sound of Metal, which I think the yeah. sound is so integral to what that story is. And I think it would be a really good film you know, to herald in this new way in which we think about that category. And and going forward, you know, if the Academy were to put in rules about like you have to have seen, you know, these movies in order to vote on them, I think you would have to make an ex- exemption for this category because people would just look at the list and be like, oh, sounds good. You know, they weren't they don't have to have, they just read a plot description. You know what I mean? Yeah. You get my horrible <laughs> joke. <laughs> oh, sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Sound of metal sounds yeah, good. Yeah. Oh, sounds good. Um, I have to write up the predictions for Best Picture, which is um, a little daunting. Well, but, you are um, the most prestigious of us all, Richard. Well, no, 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 I think it's just more that it's like I wrote something for our awards issue about the Best Picture race. So yeah. um, it made sense. But I think that, you know, the, usually there's like since there's been, you know, potentially 10 nomination nominees in that category, there has tended to be not every year by any means, but once in a while, like a kind of outlier weirdo one, like the, um, that doesn't get any other nominations or something like, uh, the, the I think the, the prime example is extremely loud and incredibly close a movie. I don't know that if anyone liked, uh, or really <laughs> saw, but it got yeah. a best picture nomination that year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a movie that people have seen cause it's on Netflix and liked uh, as evidenced by a WGA nomination, a BAFTA nomination, or at least one BAFTA nomination is the white tiger. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. which is, you know, Ramin Barani's adaptation of a very, very popular novel. We have, it has some star power in Priyanka Chopra Jonas, like, and I think it's really good. And the WGA nomination, I think might indicate that there is some rolling support for that movie. And I think I'm going to put that as like the weird kind of wild card in best picture. You know, I wouldn't, there's no reason that couldn't happen, that there's something yeah. that none of us have our eye on could pop up in there. Um, I was I was assigned original song while we're talking about our challenges personally. Um, and of course, we talked about this category uh, with Noah Gattel a couple weeks ago and how the shortlist is just really a wild journey and maybe not all that inspiring. But I um, I'm going to predict Husevik from Eurovision, which I think is far and away the best song in there um, and just be thrilled if it gets in there, um, but kind of bracing for impact for it not to. I would love that. We deserve that. I think we do, too. And then, and then when they go up there, well, up there, when they get on their cameras to perform it, 
Uh, they should play Yeah Yeah Ding Dong instead. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we will be back as promised on Monday to talk about the nominations uh, and what they have brought upon us. And you can read our predictions at VF.com. Any final words from either of you, or should we uh, stop predicting before we really get start getting things wrong? I deeply apologize for my sounds good joke. I realized it was a mistake. <laughs> You'll take some time sounded, to reflect. Sounded better in my head than I wanted. I wanted kept in, Brett, our producer. I want it kept in because it's important that people know. History needs to know what, yeah. what happened um, here today. I want to say, keep texting us. We love getting yes. your texts, and yes. um, uh, so please keep. Yeah, keep we're it rolling up. seamlessly right into the to the closing comments. Um, but yeah, find us at vf.com. Find the predictions. Find everything else, and then text us. Go to joinsubtext.com/littlegoldmen or text two one three five one three seven one eight zero and start asking us whatever questions you want. And especially, I'll I'll send out a text reminder on um, Monday for people to send us their questions about the nominations. But yes, we would love to know your burning questions, uh, and so we make sure we get into them. Um, you can find us on Twitter at littlegoldmen, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna, Joe wrote this, and Richard. Rylaws. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best new FYC campaign for Sound of Metal goes to Richard Lawson. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sounds good. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.